Welcome to Mind Rolling, another podcast from Raghu Marcus. And David Silver. Hello. Hi. Hi, Dave. Hi. Here we are again with another location mind rolling experience. Yeah. This, this time with the, uh, the great Sharon Salzberg. Um, inimitable. Inimitable, yes, yes. Is that a uh, good word, right word? It's, it's a hard word to say, but it's a great word, yeah. What does it and mean? I just it means that she's not imitatable, I think. That's the way I've always... In, really? Sort of, yeah, inimitable kind of really is unimitatable. Uh, and someone invented a word to make it easier for us. Anyway, she is that. And, uh, you know, we, we don't want to talk too much about her because it, it speaks for it. Once you hear her, you'll know. If you haven't heard, Sharon, she's extraordinarily lucid and to the point, and yet is one of the most respected, uh, you know, Eastern philosophy teachers in the United States, if not the globe. Buddhist. So, Buddhist, yes. So, um, Buddhist. Uh, so you should take a listen to that, and, um, you know, uh, I, think, I think you'll enjoy it because we enjoyed it. Uh, we, we did it outside at the retreat, where we also worked with Krishnadas and Ramdas Mirabai Bush, and we were just so thrilled to get these four really eminent people to talk to us uh, in, in one place at one time. We didn't get Ramdas to talk to us. We, we didn't keep get Ramdas saying that, but no, we didn't, we didn't get Ramdas because he, he talked true. to us privately, but yes. he he didn't talk to us on mind rolling. Although he's going to do that, yeah. Uh, so that that's coming. But he was one of the teachers there, and and it was a great experience. But I think you'll get an equal amount of uh, great info and wisdom out of what, what Sharon says. Yeah, we. I, I'll just to let you know uh, an interesting anecdote, uh, hopefully. Uh, we had some friends, my wife and I, my lovely wife, Saraswati, had some friends come from our little town who were quite new to everything. You have friends? Okay. We have two, okay, and they came okay, good. To, the, to the event and to the retreat. <laughs> And never saw Sharon before, and um, they were just bubbling over at uh, just because she's so direct about, you know, uh, her knowledge of the teachings, of the Buddhist teachings, is so expansive and huge, but she manages to give it to you through her own experience in a way that is like syrup rather than, um, you know, tough, arcane stuff. So she's just fabulous. So uh, let's not uh, uh, talk any more about her virtues because you will absolutely hear it. Just, just in, in her manner and tone of voice, is just wonderful. Uh, and uh, we want to thank everyone for supporting us. Uh, we're, we've been talking about our three-month or so anniversary of getting this podcast going and how thrilled we are with the community that's developing around it. And uh, that's got to be the one, one of the most, uh, would you not say, satisfactory? It's just satisfying things to meet it people. Is. It is. We get, we get feedback, too. I mean, uh, uh, lots of folks have, have written to us. And, uh, you know, it, it, it's just incredible to have people ask us questions, which is nice, but also give us all kinds of information themselves uh, about the subject at hand. We like that, and yeah. we, we encourage you to, uh, to hit the comment part of the Mind Rolling Podcast uh, website and, and, and write to us, because uh, that's one of the ways in which we can sort of modulate this and, and make it better. Yeah, and uh, as, as part of the support, we do 
have a couple of sponsors. We have Amazon, which we are newly affiliated with, and we are an affiliate. So if you just go through our portal, boy, you can help uh, support what we're doing here. This is all listener-supported, community-supported, and uh, Amazon, because everybody buys something from Amazon, that's for sure. So if you go through our portal, we get a little percentage. If you go through our portal uh, to Audible, uh, uh, it'll be going to audible.com, but basically audibletrial.com slash mindrolling, if you just go to that site um, and sign up and get a free audio book, and we get... uh, we get our 15 bucks for everybody who signs up. That helps us. Or go to the donate button directly on the site. Um, and, and again, we appreciate you. And David, with no further ado, is that? Yeah, that's perfect. Let's, let's listen to uh, Sharon Salzberg. Well, here we are mind rolling on the road at the Open Your Heart Retreat in Maui. And uh, David and I managed to escape you out of New York. Actually, you weren't even going to come. And we're sitting here with Sharon Salzberg, who is one of the teachers at the retreat. I sort of serve a, I have a double identity here of doing this mind rolling thing with Dave and also helping uh, present this retreat, this wonderful offering that everybody's seems to be having a great time now. Mm-hmm, I'd say, yeah. And uh, some wonderful teachings and information for people, so it's been really great. You know, some of the things that we've been talking about when we first started doing this thing was about what were the initial transformations that led us to even be open to hearing of, of, of uh, the teachings that we've taken apart in, from the East. And, you know, we have similar paths because yeah. of music. You know, we've been involved mm-hmm. in music together for a long time and partners doing all sorts of things. And uh, we both had real strong music. Mine was um, John Coltrane when I was 15 years old, played my favorite things in a club in New York. I don't know how I got into it, but mm. I had my first real transcendental kind of an experience. And it wasn't even enhanced. <laughs> So, uh, David, similar I can't to, believe that. Are you serious? In Montreal, that wasn't happening. I'm okay, sorry I, I to tell you. Is that true? Yeah. No, it wasn't until okay. 1920 before I even smoked pot or something. That's not true. Way, is that true? Yeah, that's true. That's absolutely true. We can true. spend so, this whole time saying, is that true? <laughs> <laughs> that's what is that really true? true? Yeah. Are you sure? Well, I'm um, trying to be so, um, can you tell us a little bit, like, when you were around then, and, I mean, we also talked about, obviously, the next step was psychedelics. That gave us the alternate reality that things could be different. And we, I put it one way, he puts it another. I could be happy. That could happen. <laughs> so what were the things that, that uh, happened to you around there that gave mm. you the idea? You, maybe you could be happy and there was something that lit you up before you went to India. Before I went to India? Yeah. Um, well, probably the pivotal reason I went to India was this Asian philosophy course I took in college which, honestly, as far as I can remember, it was really happenstance. It was like, oh, I need a, I need a philosophy course because it's a requirement. Right. I need, like, a Tuesday course because that would be good. And let me take an Asian philosophy course. And then there it was. It was all laid out. Um, it turned out to really be a course in Buddhism. And uh, for all the, you know, casual manner in which I chose it, it, it totally changed my life. So right. it was just like, oh, uh, I could be happier perhaps, and there are means, there's actually a way, there's a path. You know, it's not maybe so much that some people are 
it's not so much that happiness is given unto some people, and the rest of us are out of luck. Yeah. You know, it's like, oh, there's a path. Let me see if I can find it. Yeah. How long was it that's still kind of a, a struggle between your past life and that, that sort of series of revelations? Was there a, another period after that when you were not quite in that place, but still not in that place? No, not really, because I, um, the university I was going to, the State University of New York at Buffalo, right. uh, had this independent study program. So I, I did the uh, Asian philosophy course when I was a sophomore, and I um, applied right away to the independent study program to, in effect, spend my junior year abroad. That's what it was. And if you created a project that they liked, you could go anywhere in the world, theoretically just for a year. So I said, I want to go to India and study meditation. And they said, Okay, so off I went. So it was pretty quick. That's, you know? that's right. kind of remarkable, really, that it came from a university. Because most people actually don't seem to answer that way. You know, I'm sure not. Well, <laughs> you know, but you—it was much more study, and then. Well, it was like a hearing transmission. You know, I just—it was almost like I've been waiting. You know, I just was waiting to hear the words that yeah. this is possible. Yeah. So. Was yeah. psychedelics ever involved, though, around Yeah, I, I went to school in 68. I went to college in 68, sure. So that was a part But I wouldn't say that that was really, like, what made me feel happiness was possible. I mean, it was, it was but not that. It, it opened up that world up, the, the world of connectivity, that there, we are way more connected than in that kind of thing that acid does? Um, yeah, to some extent, yeah. That's true. I mean, this was a long time ago. <laughs> yeah, it's, right. it's hard to remember even. But, I mean, it was, all, it was all, there was so much happening right then. There was everything, you know. It was like um, going to college, the psychedelics, the friendships, the, um, the I don't know, I was in Woodstock, let me say. <laughs> you, you were. I was at Woodstock, oh, yes. Really? <laughs> I'm an original. <laughs> You know, so it's like, yes, my big claim to fame in some circles. You know, so it was like everything. And like, you know, it was just when uh, Ramdas hadn't come out with Be Here Now yet, but there were, you know, the early psychedelic books and then, mm. you know, the East and, right. you know, all of that. And so it was just like, whoa. Right, right. So when you, you went to India the first, that first time, just talk a little bit about the initial, the initial impressions and feelings. And yeah. When you were, and you went to Bodh Gaya, you yeah. went to where yeah. the Buddha was. Eventually, like, yeah, yeah. Fairly quickly. Uh, three months or three so. Three months. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Tell us about What that. was it like? Well, <laughs> it was overwhelming. It was intense. It was fantastic. I loved it, you know, from the first moment I arrived. Before I had left, when I was still in Buffalo, um, Chogim Trungpa Rinpoche came through. It was his first time to the United States. I don't know who did his tour, so he ended up in Buffalo, but... Uh, he spoke at this other university, and so that was like my first real life Buddhist, as far as I knew. Mine too. And, uh, Very much so. So I went to his lecture, and he asked for written questions afterwards. And then, uh, so I wrote out the question I'm leaving for India in, I don't know, four days or something. I'm leaving for India in four days with some friends. Can you suggest where I can go to study Buddhist meditation? So there's like this big pile of questions in front of him, you know, and he pulls out the piece of paper. And he reads it out loud, and he's silent for a moment, and then he says, I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. 
Uh, that was it. I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accidents. So there's no like handy monastery guidebook, you know, addresses, nothing, you know. So, so I went and sort of in that mode, and I knew the Dalai Lama was in Dharamsala. I knew he was a Buddhist, so I started out there, and um, and yet it was one of those situations that just didn't work. Even though there were, of course, fantastic teachers and lamas, you know, I'd go to them because I really wanted to learn how to meditate. That was my my big thing, and and so uh, I'd go to the meditation class, and they'd say, "Oh, the translator left town for two weeks. You know, come back." And so I'd come back, and there were, you know, Lama had to go to the dentist, who's at the other end of India. We don't know when he's coming back, and you know, so it just went on and on and on and on. And then I was in a Tibetan restaurant there, and I overheard this conversation where um, these women were talking about an international yoga conference that was about to happen in New Delhi. So. So I thought, oh, I'll go there. I'll meet my teacher. And so I went back down to New Delhi, and it was a really dispiriting affair. It was, it was terrible. The, the uh, low point was probably when these yogis and swamis were up on the stage pushing and shoving against each other to be the first to grab the mic and speak. And I thought, this is hopeless. But Danny Goldman was presenting a paper at that conference. He gave a talk. And he said he was on his way to this town called Bodhgaya oh. to do an intensive 10-day meditation retreat, which didn't have a lot of cultural baggage, and it was all, you know, uh, kind of the straight stuff, and that Ramdas would be there. And I thought, I'm going to go. That's it. Mm. And I was right. That was it. And I went with uh, Mirabai and, uh, like, 50 or 80 other people who'd also been at the yoga conference, and... We arrived in Bodhgaya and, and uh, went into this 10-day retreat. So that was it. Yeah. The rest is history, folks, because Sharon, I don't want to embarrass you, but as far as I'm concerned, there's a few teachers who came from that tradition that we all went into, or many of us back then. I wasn't there in the beginning. I went there later. <laughs> that picked up on the Vipassana tradition and Sharon and a couple of other people, Joseph and Jack, are preeminent teachers. And uh, we recommend, and I have recommended on other podcasts, when they say, what kind of meditation, what can we do? You know, we know that meditation can help us. What can we do? And it's always, to anybody, whether on a podcast or not, Vipassana is so effective. And uh, so for anybody who's listening or watching out there, um, please, where's the, tell us the name of the center and where they can go. My center? Yes. Uh, it's the Insight Meditation Society in Barry, Massachusetts. Uh, and I and many of the teachers who teach there teach everywhere. So right. uh, my website is probably the best way to find me, which is just SharonSalzberg.com. There you go. So take advantage. Um, you know, I have found, and I told you off camera a little bit about uh, our friends who have turned us on to podcasting, and we've been, I've been doing stuff with Ram Dass, and, mm-hmm. and now with David uh, through the Mind Rolling thing. And um, we have reached, or it's starting to reach, the, a younger generation, that generation which we were back then. And David and I have kind of linked up a bunch of characteristics of what was going on at that time with the characteristics mm-hmm. of what's going on mm-hmm. now, the pressures, and obviously economic now, mm-hmm. there's a war, 
and so on. There's many, and there seems to be a real desire from this generation, and we're experiencing it because many people are coming to the table saying, hey, we want some of this information, but we want it in the way that'll help us through smartphones, podcasts, you know, all of that. Um, and, and a lot of it is really, they want down-to-earth information. You know, they don't want complicated, um, arcane language from either Tibetan or Hindu or Buddhist sources. Mm -hmm. And so we've, we've been talking about it in the way, those ways that really have mm -hmm. helped us. Mm -hmm. so can you just talk a little bit about how, when you started then to get into a meditative practice, what are some of the practical ways that you were helping with mind stuff, emotion stuff, and, and you know, negative mm -hmm. stuff. In particular. Mm -hmm. Well, the first thing probably was actually just being able to concentrate a little bit, you know, which mm -hmm. is the first, often the foundational exercise, and just being with your breath or, or some object of meditation. Because the thing I saw right away was that my attention was scattered to the four winds. I was like everywhere. And, you know, like so distracted and so uncentered and so fragmented, really. And uh, just that process, first of all, that's shocking, of course, you know, like, whoa, you know. I thought it was calm enough, but, you know. No. Uh, but that's a good realization, of course, to have, even though it's a little shocking. And and over time, just, just sort of seeing um, kind of that weaving together of my being that happened much more just from being able to stabilize my attention a little bit and having having more centeredness was probably the the first really remarkable thing and then of course there's you know there's the whole process of realizing as we do that we are not our thoughts that the thoughts come and go that we don't have to be so identified and, and lost and that also nothing lasts forever and the things that we we tend to grab onto and and uh, reify and make a whole self image out of they pass and so um, it's it's really a revolutionary process. It's funny to me because sometimes meditation seems, um, or its reputation is so much about being quiet, yeah. you know, and kind of quietistic almost. But it's really very radical in in that transformative ability. Mm. Which it does stir things up uh, as well. Oh yeah. <laughs> I mean, these courses that we went to, there was a lot of odd things that happened with people. Indeed. <laughs> expressive emotion things that happened that really scared other people that were in the course. One, thing one of the things I wanted to, to talk about is that many people, and young people, who are starting to meditate will say that it's, they have great difficulty. Yeah. And one of the things that you've said many times, which really helped me, was not having, not getting hung up on coming back. Mm -hmm. and the wonderful opportunities to keep coming back. Mm -hmm. Would you just expand that a little bit? Because that really helps people to relax and start to meditate mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and not be full of the anxiety. But it mm -hmm. certainly worked out well. Yeah. Please talk yeah. about that. Well, I often say, as is true, like I, I went to India, I spent a little more than a year, my allotted year, <laughs> came back and finished school, went back to India, and then finally came back in 1974. And um, uh, at that point, my... Uh, own teacher had asked me to begin teaching so I, I kind of came back as a teacher in a way and I'd be at a party or some social situation and somebody would say to me well what do you do and I'd say I teach meditation and they would kind of go ew <laughs> that's weird or did you meet the Beatles you know <laughs> which I sadly never did you know but um but now you know that was 1974 now all these years later 
if I'm even weird places like coming back into the country through customs or something where someone will say, what do you do? I'll say, I teach meditation. The single most common response I hear is, I'm so stressed out. I could really use some of that. Mm. Although I also hear, which I really like, my partner should really meet you. <laughs> <laughs> but then I also hear, which concerns me a lot, I tried that once and I failed at it. Mm. I, I couldn't do it because I couldn't stop my thoughts, have only beautiful thoughts, keep the sleepiness at bay, you know, not be restless, whatever it is one's images or expectation is. And, and that's why I think some amount of clarity, and whether it comes from a teacher or a book or a tape or community or however uh, it might arrive, some amount of clarity really helps us so we don't bring our ordinary habits of self-judgment right into the process and have it really uh, infuse the, the effort. And so one of my beliefs early on in my own practice was that it was kind of a, a cumulative thing. Like, okay, maybe today I can only bring with, be with two breaths before my mind starts to wander. Tomorrow it'll be eight. You know, next <laughs> week it'll be 48. And then, you know, it'll grow that way. And I, it took a long time for me to understand that. It wasn't a question of trying to measure the process in that way. It was much more about strengthening the ability to let go and start again. You know, so maybe it's only one breath, maybe it's two breaths, maybe it's five breaths, and then you get completely lost in some something or another, and then comes that moment when you realize, oh, it's been quite some time since I last mm. felt a breath. Mm. That's the moment that's really critical because that's the moment we practice letting go and we are actually practicing compassion for ourselves and coming back. And if you have to do that 70 billion times every time you sit, it's great. It's not a waste. It's not because you're not good enough to do the real thing. That is the real thing. It's like 70 yeah. billion blessings. Yeah. 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 Just start over. Just start over. Yeah. No, but it's very hard to believe because it doesn't fit our conditioning. Yeah. Just like it didn't fit mine. You know? right. yeah. I think that one of the things that many people talk about who don't, who aren't practicing and following any kind of defined path and they're just opening up to it, the basic concept of how can we be happy? I mean, I talked about that in the beginning. That, that was a thought I had because I was really unhappy mm -hmm. when I was a teenager. Mm -hmm. I mean, like you said in the talk to David, you know, in one of these other podcasts that we did, without Bob Dylan, I don't know what I would have done because it just expressed mm -hmm. what we were feeling and, and there was somebody else. So. That's an important concept, too, mm -hmm. that I'd like to talk about. The fact that there are other people mm -hmm. sharing, mm -hmm. mean, you know, is very meaningful. But, I mean, you, you've written a wonderful book about happiness. Thank you. Called? Real Happiness. What is real happiness? <laughs> well, actually, I find it interesting, and, and you can tell me about the younger people you're encountering, because um, if we were yearning for happiness and that was an okay thing to want and we were willing to journey very far in order to try to find it I think uh, often these days there's much more cynicism mm. and I don't know you know, again about younger people but uh, there is a lot of cynicism about happiness and is it just selfish and mm being self-absorbed and I mean I saw that the title of the book is Real Happiness and I saw that when I went on the book tour you know town after town people would come see me and they'd say 
Well, haven't you ever seen that bumper sticker that says, if you're not depressed, you're not paying attention? <laughs> and I'd say, well, yeah, I have, actually. You know, Not only that, they talked about it in the last town. But, you know, besides that, I, I think, and I, I know what it means, and I agree to some extent, but, you know, being happy isn't really the same as being conflict avoidant and living on the surface of things and forgetting everyone else and forgetting the pain people are in. It's something much finer and... Uh, yeah, you know, so I, I considered happiness um, a sense of inner abundance and and a sense of inner resourcefulness so that even in a difficult or damaging situation, we can touch something that's intact. And in a great situation, a wonderful, delightful, here we are in Hawaii, you know, uh, we don't have to be that distracted um, or feel undeserving. You know, something like that. You know, so it's just an inner state of of being in touch with our experience in a different way. That's great. Absolutely mm-hmm. wonderful. And a great message because it is completely misconstrued what happiness yeah. is. You know, yeah. It is. But, yes, we are encountering um, people in their 20s and 30s. And... The level of there seems to be an edge taken off that level of cynicism. Mm-hmm. There's a big level of cynicism as to what's going on now with our political system, yeah. um, with obviously the the economic system, mm-hmm. the haves and the have-nots, and so on. So there's mm-hmm. a lot of cynicism there. Um, but there seems to be a genuine call for individually. I want to be more balanced. I don't want to be pulled apart mm-hmm. by all of these things. I don't want to have tremendous anger. This one, uh, and we'll mention him because he's our mentor, he's our guru, yeah. Duncan Trussell, who has this amazing podcast. And he... Uh, and Hi, we Duncan. Had, <laughs> we had one podcast with him where he started talking about um, really... He's about 30, isn't he? 30, he's he's 35. Yeah, he's young to Yeah, fairly. Yeah. Yes. yes, we don't want to get into that. No, 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 we keep yeah. coming up with this reference to ourselves as, as alter being alter cockers, yeah, which so not. we aren't. Thank uh, you. So, uh, <laughs> Duncan started railing out about <coughs> the government and what they. I think we started talking about. We, we were, were talking about the draft. Yeah, and I said that in 1968 there were marches in the streets because the upper middle class men didn't mm-hmm. want to go to, and they knew it with a four F they could. But they still protest because they're scared stiff of being sent to Vietnam. There's no draft now. There's no marching in the streets to speak yeah. of. So there isn't that kind of catalyst. But what happened with Raghu, which is really interesting, was that Duncan suddenly started ranting about the present state of affirs, saying well, that they were getting all awful these... and the CIA were everywhere. And we, well, they were getting so the soldiers out of the ghettos. There isn't a draft, but the yes, people that are said. supplying that are dying in, in Iraq and Afghanistan, they're pull, they're because there's no work. So they're pulling, they're, they're they're pulling from the get, and it's that kind saying, of... You know, that this is, these people have no choice in many cases. But what I think is interesting was that he got so out of state that Raghu, in typical fashion, said, whoa, wait a minute, all this hatred, all this negativity... This and he was you, really uptight. He was so uptight. somehow detach from this. I couldn't get Because it's going to kill us all. You know? And he did. And then he called us and said... It was kind of a big moment in his life because no one had ever called him on it before, really. And he said, we know that's true. You know, the society is dystopic or whatever word you want to use, but you can't allow yourself to go crazy through it. And that's 
speak about that a little bit. You know, how, how does one, particularly if one is 23, deal with the environmental problem, for instance? We just found out that, you know, the climate change stuff, we just found out how much worse it is, 3% last year, not 2 and all the Kyoto things down the toilet. You know, how does a young person deal with that? From your point of view, what is the best fundamental technique to go to, if you like? Not technique, but you know what I mean? Like, what, what do you do mm -hmm. with this situation? Well, I, I mean, for me, the fundamental technique is, and it's not a bad phrase, actually, okay. uh, is kind of a meditative process, because it helps me, it helps me first of all to connect to a different sense of integrity it helps me connect to a different sense of time and a different kind of possibility it's like being older now <laughs> I have the wisdom as we do you know of looking back and I can see how many times I thought I was doing something to try to make a difference or be of service and uh, didn't seem to be going anywhere and over the years, sometimes when I'm very lucky, uh, it's pointed out to me like, oh, you know, when you gave me that book or you gave that talk or you showed up here or whatever it was, um, it really, it was like planting a seed, you know, it did something. And, and uh, you know, the things that I've, I've done that I didn't have a clue if they were having, you know, any Getting kind of there. effect, yeah. you know, and... Uh, and occasionally it does happen that I get that direct kind of feedback. You know, hey, this, this really made a difference. And, um, you know, and I, I think that, and kind of going back to meditation, uh, for me, obviously I don't know what difference it's going to make, but I, I'm reminded of how little I know in the moment and how I have to do the best I can with just what's right in front of me. Because I do believe in the power of so-called small deeds. Mm. You know, and if everyone just gives up and says the problem is so immense, then of course we're going to fry or drown or, you know, it depends on where you are. <laughs> but, uh, and we may anyway, but at least we can, uh, you know, respond wholeheartedly with what we can do, step by step. And also to be able to at least at least be able to relax somewhat within this. Like, I, I read all of Hamer Children's books, you know. There are similarities in, in, in what you say, which is not surprising. But one of them is take, releasing people from all kinds of anxiety and stress about not being able to do anything and also not mm -hmm. to be able to continue something that's been working but stops working. Mm. You know, and something you've talked about, getting rid of that guilt. And that really does mm -hmm. help people, help me, a lot when I, you know, we were editing the movie that you were in a lot, and sometimes I'd see something you said 40 times because we're editing it. <laughs> and, instead, and instead of screaming or something, I suddenly realized, no, no, but I suddenly, we suddenly realized that I needed to hear that at least 40 times, <laughs> to, you know, to de stress. It's, uh -huh. it's so important what you say, and, and I mean, talk about getting through, I and mean, there's nothing more basic than hoping people stop being clenched all the time with everything they're doing. I think you do that without being too psychophantic. I think you do that in such a consummate way that it can't help but have changed a lot of people's self-hatred. Thank you. Well, you know, I, I, was, I live in Massachusetts, but I have a 
the moment I have this little sublet apartment in New York City and I was in Massachusetts for the hurricane, for Hurricane Sandy and uh, I was on Martha's Vineyard on retreat and we only had like a six hour power outage and that was the extent of it and my home in Barry only had like an hour so it was really nothing but my apartment in New York City there was no power for six days and, uh, I live on the eighth floor and I have a neighbor in a wheelchair. You're on the east side, right? No, I'm in the, right in the center. Uh, Fifth Avenue. Oh, okay. okay. Yeah, I mean, it was all the way from 34th, I think, mm. down. Because the, trans um, the transformer blew up. Yeah. For the whole downtown area. Because right. of yeah. whatever. Oh. So it was, it was like, you know, I kept thinking, well, how's, how's he, you know, like in a wheelchair on the eighth floor? And, mm. um, first, I was very naive. I just thought of buildings like that must have generators, so at least the elevators work. And of course, they don't. There's no water, you know, and it's just like, a mess. So then I, you know, I, I uh, came back in after power was back, and uh, I talked to the doorman of the building right away. And um, you know, they can't solve uh, the climate change problem in one fell swoop, but they're really good people. And so I said, "How was the guy? You know, in the wheelchair?" And they said, "Oh, we took care of him. You know, we made sure he was okay. We all, we all pitched in. You know, one guy said to me." Really proudly, he said, "I got here every day, because they don't, you know, they don't live there." And I said, "Where, you know, how did you get in?" He said, "I borrowed a car. I just got in every day, but, you know, there was like no gas too, you know." No, so that it was, was a like nightmare. There were lines miles long and fights and guns and everything, you know. So yeah. that was an incredible. Yeah, he said, "I got in every day." And then this other doorman said to me, "He said I didn't leave. He said there was power where I live. I only left once to change clothes." In six days, he said, "I just stayed here because we, all, you know, we all had to do it. We had to just like help, help one another, you know." And it was like so beautiful to see that. So, even though the problem is so immense and, and pretty frightening, at the same time, you just see that, you know, look at that, look at look at that good-heartedness, human potential. Yeah, is real. Yeah. So I want to hear again because we're going to end this segment. Trungpa's thing. I, I mean, it keeps reverberating in my mind. What the line you, that he yeah, said to me? Yeah, the line. Give us the line uh, again. I think you had perhaps best follow the pretense of accident. So this is our recommendation to everybody out there. I think we had all better follow the pretense of accident. David followed it when he listened to that one line of Sharon's for 40, 50 times over and over before it hit him, you know, what he needed. So, uh, and also, uh, we... We have a relationship with Audible.com, and I'm hoping that you all can get some of Sharon's books there. Certainly, Real Happiness is, and, and another one that I love, and I've asked her to talk about while she's been at the retreat, which has been fantastic. We'll do that in another episode about faith uh, from the Buddhist pers perspective. It's an important book. So uh, get them any way you can get them. And, Thank you so much. Oh, thank you. Many blessings on your, you. your new venture. Yeah, May the mind you. roll. Fabulous. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. Sharon Salzberg on mind rolling location. Um, and she's just something else. I mean, is she not? Yeah, she's so clear and down to earth, despite the depth of what she's getting into. You don't even notice that because you're so... You know, I find it so recognizable, everything she says. We, we've all had some variant of, of these experiences, and she lets us know how to, you know, how to get out of certain jams yeah. uh, that are usually mental, right? Yeah.
And uh, again, we mentioned, you know, uh, the support for the Mind Rolling podcast and certainly audibletrial.com uh, slash mindrolling. You go to that. And David, tell me that I, I believe you've told me that so some of Sharon's books are available as audio books from them. Is that not true? Yeah, just check it out on, uh, when, just go to the audible.com site and look under spirituality or some such subheading and uh, it's very clear what it is. There's a many, many books under the spiritual uh, you know, thing and under many other interesting ones too. Health and um, all that kind of thing. Excuse me for my phone ringing there. <laughs> that really adds to our podcast, folks. We have ambient sounds from silver over yeah, there. Yeah, it was, it was actually a special effect to make you get on the phone and phone audible.com. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> No, just go to go to the. But it is important to go to audibletrial.com slash mindrolling because because then you know we can reap the benefits of of your support while you get a book. Yeah, so exactly. It, it, it is it is kind of a nice way of doing it. Yeah. Or go you know again Amazon. Go there through that portal or just a donate. Uh, hit the donate button. But uh, we uh, thank you again for your participation your creation of community with us and your support, and we'll see you next week. Goodbye. Yeah,